Hello, my friends. Welcome back to The Conversation, the Naked Leadership Podcast. My name is Chad. In this episode, this is our first installation in a new series that we're doing called The Life Cycle of a Team Member. And in this episode, we're talking about recruiting and hiring the right person for the position. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. This one is packed full of ideas and principles that will help you get the right people in the right seats in your company. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to The Conversation. My name is Chad. This is the Naked Leadership Podcast. I'm here with my friends Dan Takini and Adrian Kaler on this beautiful yeah. afternoon. How are you, gentlemen? Good. Good, thanks. Breathing. Yeah. Live, engaged, despite whatever. I, somebody, I was talking to somebody first thing this morning. He said, how are you doing? I said, I'm just contending with reality. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So we're coming back from a brief pause on the Naked Leadership Podcast. We were uh, running a million miles an hour. Adrian was exploring the rim of the Grand Canyon. It's still uh, there. It's still there, guys. It's it's still there. Not many people looking at it right now, but it's no, still there. It was awesome. They said it's like usually thirty thousand cars a day, but there were about five hundred people in the park total. So it was like a ghost town. It was awesome. Once in a lifetime. That's so wow. unbelievable. That's incredible, but I'm happy to be back and I'm excited about this series that we're going to do. I'm calling this the Life Cycle of Talent series. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a working title. I didn't I love put thought into that. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, but so I, I really love this idea of talking about literally the life cycle of the talent that we bring into our organizations as founders, as business owners, you know, as well as we know that this is one giant consideration that you have when running your business. Who and how do we get the right people in the right seats that will do the job the way we want them to do the job, that will bring the most talent, that will bring the most insight. Um, and and uh, a lot of my conversations in my coaching conversations with business owners and founders is around this. Um, and you know Whether it's from the beginning of the cycle or in the middle or the end when we've got to can somebody or, or, you know, somebody's moving on. And uh, so there's lots and lots to talk about. So the first, this is the first episode in the series, and we're going to talk about getting people in the right seat uh, to do the job that we're, that we're hiring them to do. You can call it whatever you want to call it, recruitment, prospecting, hiring, whatever it is that you call it. This is the, this is the episode we're going to talk about it. So I thought it would be interesting uh, first off to start uh, by talking about culture cost of turnover. Because whenever we talk about or think about bringing somebody into, the orga into our organization in a position, we have to consider the possibility that they might not work out. Um, and I think, you know, whenever... A lot of times in, in my coaching, and I know I've been coached by both of you and been able to sit in with coaching with both of you, and I know that you do the same sort of thing is where we like to play out. Sometimes we call it the parade of horribles, but it also doesn't even need to be a bad thing, right? We no. play out a scenario into the future so that we know where we're headed. And I think a lot of people don't take a good look at what I call culture cost of turnover, um, and really get connected to what that might cost them if they don't make the right decision in this time of hiring and recruitment and prospecting. So as I talk about that, um, that cost to our culture, uh, you know, and I, I guess I don't quite, I, I want to open it up and just start a conversation about it. I don't know. I don't have a pinpointed question towards it, but I, I do want to talk about what do we notice as, uh, we start bringing people into an organization and we, we create a culture of turnover. What are those costs that, that we experiencing? What are, what are some of your first initial reactions to that? Well, I mean, turnover, not only expensive, obviously people are aware of the impact it has to the both, you know, to the bottom line and probably the top line as well. Uh, if you got, you know, you don't have somebody in there to, to 
to generate revenue if it's a you know if it's a revenue generating position. But you think about the you know what is culture? Really, the question is you know, what is culture? When we talk about that. Great and, place to start. Yeah, you know, and I think that there are a lot of definitions for culture, you know, and they're fairly technical and so on. But we use a pretty simple conversational view of culture. That culture is a network of conversations that are designed to, you know, produce a certain outcome. Now, <clears throat> what that outcome is can be can vary depending on, you know, what the aim of the narrative is, what the aim of the culture is, right? So, for instance, how you and I talk to each other, like, have you ever noticed this? When you walk into a culture, when you walk into a building, when you walk into an organization, there are already, the culture's already in place and you're already being informed about what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable in so many different ways, right? So if you walk into an organization and everybody is very well, you know, dressed in suits, et cetera, and, and things are meticulous, et cetera, there's a certain message about what's expected of you in that organization. And there are certain things that are acceptable or able to be put on the table and talked about. And then those narratives also exclude certain things. Certain things aren't to be talked about and are taboo, if you will. And those conversations, sometimes we don't know what they are. We stumble into them awkwardly and they blow up on us. We go, oh, wow, I didn't, you know, you ever have that experience? We go, what did I say? Everybody just shuts down, you know, because you brought something up that, that no, like maybe it's a past thing that occurred in the company you heard about and you didn't know that it was tied to the general manager's you know, and, or, you know, your manager in some way, and he's sensitive or she's sensitive about it. And by talking about it, you risk, <clears throat> you risk, you, you might risk losing your position or at least your credibility or your trustworthiness, et cetera. Best case scenario, you take the breath out of the room. Yes, I've you had do. that experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, so culture is that, and, and it's not like, um, it's pretty invisible because conversations are going on all the time but not audibly. <laughs> We're always in a conversation about something. We're living in a, an ongoing narrative and we are being influenced by the narratives around us. So understanding that these things are in place and that, that conversation or, or a way of listening is another way of saying this. Because the conversation, if I think, if I understand that performance is very important in this organization and that um, it, it's more of a meritocracy than it is a personality that gets you by, then I'm going to probably intuit that and focus myself on that. If I intuit that it's personality and it's politically driven, I'm going to intuit that because it's going to be communicated to me in so many subliminal ways. And I'll probably rise up to that. I'll probably or react to that. So there's knowing what the culture is, understanding the culture, being able to speak into it is a huge part of inventing a workplace that's where, you know, where you can have it happen, right? right? That you would like to participate in. And that there are certain principles in doing that. There are certain ways to approach that to keep the conversation alive and above board and let's say accessible to change or for change if that long diatribe made any sense. <laughs> if you want more on that, you can go to thechangeimperative.com. That's right. And, and grab the ebook that Dan wrote, which is brilliant. It's like upwards of 80 pages of all about culture and the different roles that people play in culture. Uh, it is a must have for leaders in an organization. But um, yeah, I love that you started there, Dan, that let's define culture. Yeah. And what are we experiencing in culture? Yeah. I was listening to a, I was just listening to a podcast on the Joe Rogan experience with a psychologist who um, she, she works with police departments. <laughs> she's her whole, she's dedicated her entire career to working with police officers that experience trauma. And she also works with departments on their culture. And she talks about, you know, the best predictor of individual behavior for officers is the culture of the department. Yeah. I thought that was so insightful as I as I apply that to private institutions and organizations. It's the exact same thing. 
Yeah. I think one of the greatest predictors of your the behavior of their people is the culture that they're that they're swimming in every day. My, yeah. my old company, old consulting firm that we sold in 2012 was called Culture ROI. In other words, it's the culture that produces the ROI. It's it, if you want to, it's like all action comes out of relationship, and all relationship is a conversation, right? So the conversation is the relationship. What's the quality nature? of our relationship is to check into the quality and the nature of our conversation with each other, with ourselves. You know, how trusting am I to put an issue on the table here with my, in my company? How open am I to receive feedback and coaching, counsel, et cetera? Yeah. Well, the, uh, what, I, what I love about it is, and, and I, I'm, I'm glad you went on uh, or took some time in the beginning, uh, Dan, to kind of define what culture is, at least as we view it. And our, and we even have an ever evolving, you know, you know, uh, updating experience of what culture is. So we and we experiment, and we exper also experiment with language, so that even the concepts that we talk about in our work are adaptable and can people can grab onto them and have you know have handles on it. So anyway, thanks, thanks for that description about it. My, I think when people, what what my question in my head is like, what do what do people think is culture? What do people mean when they say it? I my experience is people think that their values are their culture. People love to talk about their core values of the company, which were usually crafted in a boardroom before the company began. Here's what we're about. Here are these three things that we're about. We're about blah, you know, honor and, and customers and service. Great. Authenticity. Authenticity. Okay. Yeah. But what we, you know, when we talk about culture, it's like those those might be ideals. But the the challenge with ideals is that we usually don't want to investigate them or explore them. We don't want to know how far off we are from them, because um, that would be, feel like an indictment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, in some ways, like when we when we think about culture, we think about values. You're probably using those values to avoid a whole bunch of things. When we talk about culture, it's really what's happening on the ground. If I had microphones in your break room, if I was in all your meetings, what I'm hearing and what I'm not hearing is actually where the culture is and what people could talk about and not talk about. The, the challenge I think for most teams that we work with is they've had the values conversations, maybe, maybe, or they're in a, they're in a handbook somewhere, or they may even be written on the wall, like 1984 version of values. Um, but or they might recite them in a weekly meeting or something like that. That's right. But rarely, rarely has a has a leader actually, especially a team specific leader, taken the time to explore how at least how I talk about it is culture is how we've decided we're going to play ball here. That's what I usually say. What does it mean to be on this team? What does it mean to participate on this team? What does it take to get kicked off the team? What works here? What doesn't work here? What do we what do we police here? What do we never police here? What matters what, here? What, yeah. What what's at risk? What kind of risks are you gonna are gonna be are you gonna need to take in order to maintain and reinvent this culture over and over again? This these values because you think about it, you really can tell what the values are because they are what people are naturally aiming at or what they're using to govern themselves into being with each other. That's right. And so certainly great to have them written down, but they're going to be exposed yeah. anyway. And then we get a chance to correct and see, gosh, how would we articulate that here now in this moment? Yeah. Yeah. I was just in a, in a call with a, one of my favorite clients to coach and he was telling a story. They have a very innovative type company and he was on site they're, They've got this test thing they're doing and, and people are it's, they're in the desert to do this test site and it's very hot and people are very tired and they're, you know, and everybody's kind of COVID weary. I think people are using that uh, language. And one of the guys in the meeting had said, you know, I don't want to be here um, in the meeting. Awesome. Right. I don't want to be here in the meeting. And then my guy, the guy I was coaching, went back to him the next day in the moment. He didn't know how to respond. Right. Mm -hmm. Because in some ways, in some ways that, statement was a threat when he when he heard it as a threat like when yeah, he the, talked about this to me too i remember talking to him yeah and that group call we brought it up again today because the next morning he went back and celebrated the guy and said hey man thanks for saying that who else feels this way 
you know, and actually use that level of honesty, even if the honesty sounded bad, that level of honesty was an invitation for other people to get honest. Now, it's really powerful because one of the values that he talks about is creativity, right? Yep. And, and what's ironic or what tend in the culture, what we discovered is that there's a highly dogmatic tendency, a tendency towards dogma in the culture, meaning these are really educated, well-educated, very accomplished people we're dealing with. And yeah. so they have already landed on what is true and what isn't. So, but the thing about creativity is it demands that we question what we've made up is true. And if I'm dogmatic, well, then I'm going to shrink the creativity down and that's going to reduce my ability to innovate. Right. Yeah. So that was one of the first things we hit over a year ago, I think it was. Well, and then this, this client was talking about a youngster that there's a guy that's young in his view, young, and he's a, a head, uh, engineer in this in this company and he's earned his way into like a really top tier environment or a top tier role that's going to be he's going to be really proud of and what my client was telling him was hey you know you're young but you ought not act so young you know feel free in those moments right now people are tired don't you don't have to buy into being tired you don't have to buy into being frustrated you have to buy into being neglected you can actually lead even though you're, you're only 28 in this organization. You can lead. And if you do lead like this outside the norms, because the culture is especially, I mean, COVID has given permission for people to be confused and overwhelmed, um, scared, cautious, you know, and all those things might be authentic feelings. But the 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 ever the growing, ever present mood of those things um, can be can be the culture. I mean, people listening now, they might be realizing, oh, this is the culture we're in right now. We're using COVID to be it, but we've chosen now. We've got a kind of a new set of agreements that we're running by. My client's point to this young guy is, hey, at any point you step up and be countercultural, which in this, in this scenario we're talking about is like, hey, decide to persist for excellence, even if all the people that have been here twice as long are, 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 are being mediocre. Because in some ways, mediocrity can be the culture. We would never call it that, but we might have a culture of playing not to lose, playing not to get caught, playing not to F up instead of playing to win, playing to take a risk, you know, you know, sticking your neck out. So excellence might actually be countercultural in some uh, in some cultures where that was where and we're it, talking about it now. And, and yeah, in a very and if you take that down into more of a um, chunk it down a bit. Yeah. People, the studies show, a lot of the business studies show that people are willing to make those kinds of shifts. Like when you ask me, well, look, don't let it run you, run it. Let's, how can we reinvent ourselves so that we're not apathetic? We are excited. I mean, how, what will that take? And to do that, people have to be at least, they got to be excited for about at least 75% of their work. You know, that whole, there's a whole theory that's out there that's been proven. It's called the work in uh, the, the uh, enjoyment performance theory. And, and it's found that if people enjoy 75% of what they're doing, they're going to be much more excited about, motivated to throw themselves into the work and get things done because they most of what they're doing, they're excited about. It's something they enjoy doing. It's natural for them. And, and how do you do that? How do you get a hold of because there, there are some really, there's a numerous different traits that you can take a look at. How do you find out, how do you assess whether somebody would like the job? And if you're going to hire somebody, you've got to know what the job is you want them to do specifically. And then you've got to be, you know, so you get, that will help you. And probably the easier part of the job is what do I want them to do and accomplish? What do they need to be and grow into? What kinds of skills do they need to have already developed knowledge and skill base? Now, once you get that, you know they're competent. But the next question is, they may be competent, they may be skillful, and they may be trained to do it, but do they like at least 75% of what they will be doing? Because it's very common that somebody's extremely qualified but doesn't like to do most of the work they're required to do in the organization. And then it's hard to say, well, that guy would have been, how come we couldn't keep that guy or that gal? How come we couldn't get them on the ground, right? And they... And when the studies, a lot of the studies that have been done shown is that, well, you probably wouldn't have because they didn't like most of what they were doing. But you're, you're actually better off hiring somebody 
who may not be quite as skilled as that person, but is loves 75, 80, 90 percent of what they'll be doing because they will grow rapidly and be and they'll do it on their own because it's something they enjoy doing. So getting it's like getting the right person into the right position. So I've got to define what the position is and what its purpose is and what its outcomes are and the kinds of uh, skills and attitudes that are going to make it successful. And then I got to have a way to calibrate in an interview process. Would this person like 75% of what they're doing here at least? And that's that I know it sounds crazy, but that is the black box that most we face when we hire somebody is how do we know, how do we find out if this is something they're capable, not just capable of doing, but they're suited to do it. And that because they're suited to do it, it's going to be satis they're going to get a great amount of satisfaction and enjoyment out of giving themselves to it. I love what I love what you're talking about, Dan, because there there you you mentioned the skill set, the talent. Uh, the uh, experience, all of that kind of stuff. And we've gotten pretty good at measuring potential candidates against those metrics. Yeah. But unfortunately, most organizations stop there. Yeah. Because, well, because they don't have, how do you measure suitability? How somebody's going to show up inside the culture? Well, there, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of instruments out there that claim to be able to measure the suitability. You know, there's the DISC and there's the Myers-Briggs and there's all these psychological, most of them are psychological personality, basically, and personality sorters. The problem is with personality uh, make, you know, assessments is that they, there's no connection between personality and performance. There's no scientific connection between them. However, there is a scientific connection between performance and behavioral preferences, what people prefer to do, which is very different than personality. You and I could have very close personality traits, but prefer to do completely different things. Or enjoy and get fulfilled by different things. That's right. Yeah. And so knowing this, you know, Adrian and I have we sought around, I did for years and to find, I've looked at all kinds of assessments and just none of them any good now the disc is an interesting assessment because it's measuring behavioral pref preferences the the four the disc the four the d the ias and the c are behavioral preferences but it only measures four of them and there are hundreds of them and so i actually found an assessment that measures 175 of them and not only does it do that it 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 has also identified the tensions that executives, employees have to navigate to produce anything or to be productive. There's like 12 paradoxes that we have, like for instance, you and I are communicating, right? And, and, and communication is a very powerful tool, important as you would, I'm sure you get, in leading a team or leading or putting a team together or debriefing a breakdown and being able, communication is everything, it's a big deal. And there's a paradox in communication, right? And that paradox is being frank or, you know, forthright, to the point, open. And the other one is di diplomacy, stating things in a tactful manner. And you can, they're paradoxical, right? Somebody who's forthright, open to the point is, can also be, and has been at times, uh, they'll probably be also diplomatic. The point is we exist somewhere between that tension. And the point, if I, let's say I'm, I'm really high on frankness, but low on diplomacy. Well, that means that I'll probably pretty quickly get to be blunt. And once I do, I'm going to miss a whole bunch of people who need me to be diplomatic. They might just shut down and not hear me. Or if I'm extremely diplomatic and not very high on frankness, then the tendency is going to be to say things that people may not get it because I wasn't clear enough or frank enough about what I wanted. And I'll, I'll have this story. Well, I, I can't believe it. I said it a million times. How come you guys couldn't hear it? Right now, the idea is to get balanced. And if I can identify where I'm at in that tension, I can begin to see what I need to develop. And if I'm willing to do that, and what are the kinds of workarounds can I employ by maybe I, I bring it, maybe I'm too diplomatic. So I bring Adrian around along because he's so 
Frank. Damn likable. Damn likable and Frank. And and so that's a workaround. But I could also learn to be more Frank. I could take some risks. I can do that's something we could work with in a leadership training. Yeah. So there's 12 of these paradoxes, and to be able to identify them helps because they're constructed, by the way, frankness and diplomacy are behavioral preferences. I prefer to be frank. I prefer, when do I prefer to be frank? I prefer to be diplomatic. When do I prefer? And is it appropriate? And what happens, where do I go under pressure? So the the assessment we put together is a very, it's very quick, you take it and it pumps out 175 of these and shows us where they stand. It pumps out a 50 page report and gives us a good sense. It's actually a little spooky of what, this, which at least that's what all our clients say like, wow, man, that thing, I didn't even know that about me, but it's true. But it, what it does, it gives us a good sense of what they're going to enjoy doing. It'll give us a sense of, will they like, so what we put into it is all the requirements that we can put a, we can put all the requirements for the competency and then we can put all the requirements for the suitability and it'll tell us how much of the job they're going to enjoy probably. And then we can, and then where it, it, and it doesn't mean that we'd make the decision on it, but it gives us an idea of how to focus our conversations or our interviews so we can see if they're aware of, of their tendencies, of these tensions. And where, and if they're aware of them, what are some of the workarounds they've come up with? And if they're not aware of them, cool, then we know how we can support them. And watching how they respond to that helps us see how coachable they are. So we get a sense of how willing they are to deal with and work with themselves to move along. And there's a number of ways, really, really cool metrics in there. For instance, understanding how much of a challenge somebody's willing to take on in relationship to their desire to advance in the company. If they have a high desire to advance in the company, but they're not willing to take a challenge on, you can bet they're going to be frustrated because they won't probably won't take the kind of challenges they need to make the advancements. And we can open up that conversation. So things like that. Dan, you mentioned interviews. And this is like, this is literally our secret weapon, both in this process, the recruiting, hiring, prospecting process, but also as we come into, into the middle of some project with a team and miscommunication, you know, communication has fallen apart and there's breakdowns left and right. We're behind on timelines. We're below profit or, you know, we're, we're below our goals. Well, that's usually what we get called anyway. That's at that moment. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then we're there long enough and we get to, to participate in this recruiting process as new positions open up or we've got to replace talent or whatever. Well, so it's restructure. We got to restructure the, and I want to just correct something I said. That's usually when we get called. We either get called when something's really unraveling and not well, mm-hmm. or we get called by, like just recently we got called by a very foresighted executive who said, look, you know, we're number one in our industry and we're killing it. We do a billion dollars a year in sales, but it's all low hanging fruit and I'm nervous because as the competition comes up, I'm concerned that we won't be able to hold the market because our salespeople aren't, they don't get it about resilience. Basically they give up easy. They, you know, it's low hanging fruit. And this guy is one of those four-sided guys. And he's like, look, he called us after he read the change imperative and said, I want to make a change. And I want to talk to you guys because I, what you wrote here makes a lot of sense to me. And I see that the future of this organization, which is privately held, I do about, I think, three or four billion a year total in business um, is dependent on our ability to hold and take more of this market. And we want to make sure our salespeople and uh, that culture is tuned up for the market as it gets more competitive. So it's one of those two reasons we get called in. They're about to launch a new project and they are aware that they're they're going to need to do some prepare for change or they're in the midst of breakdown and they know they need change. Dan, you mentioned interviews and I wanted to talk for just a second about this age old process of application resume interview in light in, you know, in light of what we just talked about where we can easily detect um, whether or not they are capable of the work 
but it's not easy to detect suitability unless we have a tool, unless we have some sort of measurement of how they're going to show up in these paradoxes that you talked about. So I want to talk about for a moment, um, this process of application resumes interviews, what, what do we notice without being able to, to gauge whether or not the person is suitable for the culture and the position and whether they'll enjoy it? I mean, interviewing, what are you getting? What version of that person are you getting in the interview if you can't beeline it to their paradoxes? Yeah, it, it, you, it's, you know, it's kind of groping around in the dark. And there are some really good interviewers. I've seen some people that, are, that I've worked with that are just great at listening and being able to identify things that they can talk about. But that's a pretty hit and miss conversation, right? So um, that's part of what, when I talk to people about, hey, look, we've got a tool that will, at the very least, help you hone what you can talk about in a very short period of time and get a look into that this person probably isn't going to talk about, especially if they don't like it, they're not going to want to talk about it. Well, outside of the tool, what would you say majority of the time, what version of the person are we getting? Well, in we're getting, we're getting the, like, you know, think of yourself, you go in, you're going to give them the best view of you. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I was, I think it's important, you know, to even notice the container that interviews are in. Right. So, my what I what what it is most of the time is that both parties are desperate when they're interviewing, right? I love and, that frame. You know, I mean, I mean, somebody's there to get a job. Maybe they're there to enhance their career. They're usually there because something else sucks, so they want to get out. So they're mm -hmm. interviewing to get something new, which is and sometimes new is just better than the past. But then people at the hiring, the companies that we work for that utilize us to help the interview process, we've, I've always got to check my people saying, hey, don't be desperate here because people that are desperate make de desperate decisions. Well, what, yeah, an example was they had hired somebody in the human resource department because nobody wanted to take it. So they put somebody in there. And when we talked to this person and we did some work with them, and we did the review. First, they hated it. Second, when we did their... They, they were, their, their compassion, their empathy for other people was so low that it was no wonder they didn't like it because they just, they didn't, that wasn't a position that, that they're more of a, they like to do things and they like to do things alone, which they, there were plenty of places to put that person. But in this position was exactly the wrong position, HR, where you need, and I remember talking to somebody in the company saying, well, let's go to HR. They go, oh no, no, don't put me through that. And then when I, I worked with this gal in HR, I went, oh, I get it. Because she didn't want to be there either. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think most most executives that I know hate interviewing, hate interviewing others. So what's that's also good for, please get this over as quickly as possible. <laughs> so they don't want complexity. They don't want the next round. They don't want to see another batch of people. They might be tired. One of our companies we worked with, the, the recruiter that worked for the company, was always overwhelmed and routinely gave them crappy. So the whole the whole process was horrible, um, and you know. So usually they just they want to they'll end up just picking somebody. And I think maybe to your to your point, they don't they don't when they jump into the conversation. There's a couple things. One is they put way too much stock in somebody's resume. I say, um, I mean, resume is interesting. Resume is a, essentially you know, a timeline of where you were has very little or nothing to do with where you're headed. Um, but it's also, you know, we, we just, we put, you know, we, we put stock in if there's a brand we knew or if they were there for X amount of years as if that's worth something. We, we weren't there with them. Um, but if they were with this brand that we respect, we assume so many things. Um, and well, you know, one, one thing we assume, and sometimes it's safe, I mean, it's got high degrees that they've got some level of competency if they've lasted this long in a position like that. It's probably a good good way to start to feel out competency. Yeah. Yeah. That might be true. I'll, I'll continue to play devil's advocate. So they're either they were there good or they're really good at hiding for eight years. That's right. That's yeah. the other. Or they're really great at manipulating for eight years. They're really great at quote unquote delegating for eight years. I mean, who knows? I mean, but you're or, or really good at just doing enough. 
Well, yeah. and, then, and then you got you have a point there, Adrian, because then they have a reference, right? And you go to the reference, and the reference is going to give them a good one because they just want to get they don't want to have any trouble more with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, so most people do softball answers, and it's prepackaged. You can you can you can predict what the questions are going to be. It's just the question behind it, you know, or it's the having the uncomfortable conversation, which most people don't want to do, especially most people don't want to do with a stranger. Um, I know even I've got to watch this for myself. My ego is so loud at times. I'm interviewing somebody wanting them to like me and I'm the one offering them a job. (laughs) And I want them to like me so much. It's like so loud in my head. I don't realize that's what's happening. Why do I, why am I working hard to get this person to like me? They're coming to me for a job. But you know, if you, if you can't be a whole, get a hold of those conversations, even when you're the interviewer, then you're not going to really reveal um, the future tensions now, because that's what you want to do, I think, in an interview. You want to reveal right. the future tensions right now, but it's going to take some risk to do that. Like, what do you not want me to know about you? That's a pretty risky question, which most people won't ask. And, um, and most people won't push hard in an interview process and hide behind HR policy um, to do that instead of actually asking permission to ask some questions or can we get into it? You know, there's lots of, and we can, we've worked with people around what are the, what are the top five questions you ought to be asking, um, when you're interviewing people? Um, cause that's worth, that's worth exploring. Maybe we should do a, a, a podcast episode that on, or, be a good one. or something. Yeah. You know, but you don't, you, they don't, because they're so, most people want to be done with the process and we're really dying for a solution will form this person into the image of the solution and buy that. And, 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 you know, and so they're buying the solution called this person's name, but that person, they didn't ask enough questions to see if they actually wanted to do the real job, which is, Hey, this is going to be harder than you think you're, you like me now you're acting like you like me now because you want the job, but you're probably not going to like me in the future. I'm going to be, you know, more stressed out than I am right now. I'm trying to impress you as well. When we get into the trenches, you know, we're going to be. Um, well, there are some things that I've done. Like, first thing I watch and see, are they on time? If they're not, how do they fill out the application? Was it thorough? Then I ask them if they were late. And then it's okay with me that they're late. I'm not, I can deal with that. I'm more interested in how they deal with being late. I'm more interested in the attitude they take when it's time to account, like, oh, you were late. Let's talk about that. Did you notice that? Yeah. You know, or see if they say something about them being late. Are they willing to acknowledge it? And let's see what, like, what kind of conversation they're, how willing are they to have? If there was something not filled out well in, the, in you know, completely in the app, and I make sure there are things that I want them to fill out to see how they, how they communicate and how they, how transparent they're willing to be. Because, Look, the bottom line for me is transparency and openness. Those are the two keys. Am I willing to say what's there for me? And am I open to hear what's being said to me in light of that? Am yeah. I willing to consider that? If those, That's one of the key things for me when I'm interviewing somebody. And, and so I'm looking and I'm fine on they're you know, creating some kind of conflict, not, not like in the interview, but let's say they're late. They didn't fill out all the app. Maybe give them something to do. Critique them on it. See how they see how what they if they ask for help. Give them something that would need help. I mean, there are things I would do. I've done to see how somebody is going to respond, and I'm more interested in over the years and from my experience in their ability to be transparent and their willingness to be transparent and their willingness to be open and how well do they use their words and. How, how how willing are they to inquire when they don't know? Yeah. yeah. What's well, a perfect, go ahead, Chad. Oh, I was just going to say, Adrian, I love your frame of desperation, like getting a gauge, getting a pulse on where are you, where are you at with desperation? Um, because we rarely make strategic decisions in positions of desperation. Or, or perceived positions of desperation, right? I mean, it's it's at whatever cost we ignore or we find evidence that isn't there. Um, and so I think it's really, I love you, both of you talk a lot about slowing down to speed up. Yes. And this is one area that it's so important to slow down in order to speed up. Yeah. Because most, most founders are urgent. Yeah, it yeah. makes them good at what they do. That's yeah. right. 
And I, you know, for my clientele is a little bit different demographic. The majority of my clientele is a little bit different demographic than your guys is. I'm much more working with entrepreneurs, small business, mostly creatives. And when it's hiring time, it's like, get somebody in there as fast as I can, because I've got all of these other things going on that have to be taken care of. Right. This is just a thorn in my side that I even have to do this. Yep. You know, and, you got to roll out the parade of horribles. Yep. Yeah. You know, like if I don't take the time to really know what I'm hiring somebody into and what I need and interview them, what will it look like when I have five people on like that? Mm -hmm. Like, what will I then be doing? Yeah. <laughs> if it's yeah. not, if I don't get that in. Yeah, I can so deeply relate to that. I mean, running my film business for so many years, it was just the, it was a revolving door and we couldn't figure out why. Uh, and we, we never took time to get clear on the position that we were feeling and who would integrate into the culture and how in a way that would get us where we wanted to go. And so we found ourselves with uh, uh, camera operators walking off of set in the middle of, of production with Volkswagen, uh, you know, it's just so many incidents where we, we could have, what's that? That's where that hurts. That, that made me pucker up a little bit there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know it. And, uh, you know, just so much of that could have been, uh, a better, not a better, but a, a we didn't know how good it could get if we would slow down. Well, yeah. you know, the, the other thing is on the other side of that, I had an organization where I had my average, you know, top my employees were stuck around and many, most of them for 15, 18, 19 years. And there's a downside there, too, because pretty soon you all have the same blinders on and you're and you're buying each other's bullshit, you know, and as, as long as you can keep mediocrity in or you can keep a certain level of sustaining your lifestyle in the sense of innovation goes out the window and then pretty then what happens is people start to get um territorial about what they've done because they've been there for so long and they, they and, and if you don't intervene in it then it's easy to float into what you owe me because i've been here for a long time right yeah. and, and so keeping people challenged and developing the succession plan is very important and if you know if it's healthy for some people to turn over every year and I found myself trying to hold everybody, and that really turned out to be uh, more devastating than it was beneficial. Yeah, uh, you know when we're when we are you know helping a leader think through the nature of the breakdown. Usually, we'll talk about you know what where, what is the breakdown categorically? Like, is it a competency issue or is it an attitudinal issue? There's only two breakdowns. You know, so but you also think about interviewing in that way. I think the the easiest way to interview and the shortcut uh, that's that's justifiable to the people you have to report to is to interview people along competency, which is why we use a resume. They've been here. They did this project. Everybody's got canned answers about what they did, the back at blah, 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 and how great it went. And you're not going to test those assumptions anyway or that story anyway. And it's a well-practiced answer. That's, those are competency type questions. Um, but you don't, people aren't usually interviewing along the lines of, of attitude, which is really around, that's where culture is, is held, is in the attitudes um, and out of the attitudes come the behavior of people. But, you know, like, to, to therefore, like, ask questions about resilience. Like, when's the last time you blew it in a major way and had to go apologize? Yeah, that's a decent question to ask in an interview. When's the last time you blew it and had to go apologize? When's the last time you blew it and hit it? People probably won't ask that question, but damn, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? When, you know, I mean, that, those are, these are attitudinal things, which is like, you know, how much do I want to cover? You know, how much do I want to like cover my own ass? How much? I, and I like to ask about their last, their last job. Like not just why did you cut leave and like that, but, but what, what worked best for you there and what worked least for you there? And then I listen because if what worked, if everything's externalized, well, they did this, this, and this for me. And I like that, but I didn't like this, this, and this. That's one thing. But if they say, what was best for me is at a place where I could express myself. They take ownership of what they did. And then what didn't work for me was I really missed this opportunity. And, you know, they did some things that didn't work for me, but I didn't push back. And I'm listening for how much do they hold, take responsibility for 
their contribution to what they did and how much do they take advantage of it and are they going how much are they blaming their the their leaving on their last employer because yeah is it a victim story or a hero story yeah because if if they're blaming the you know that other it was like it's it's my competition i'll never forget i had this gal I was coaching she had a big daycare organization bunch of them all over and i was listening to her interview this gal and this gal was telling about how shitty the competition was and she was so glad she came to the place and she pumped up a lot of sunshine up this gal's dress and she gets done and she goes well i'll call you and she comes back in she goes what do you think and i go that's not a good hire she goes why i go you're the next person whoever your competition is when you do something here that she doesn't like or things get tough she didn't mention anything about how she might have triggered that what she hopes is here how she stands you know what she's going to do here she just made there was the other they were she was leaving purely before the other well she chose to keep this gal to take her on and it was not but two months later i get a call from her and she says you're right i'm now that person <laughs> said, well there you go and she said the sad thing was and this is the culture cost is she soured a couple of the other workers yeah right like she was a mother who brought her kids in but she by taking the child in and by not being able to work with her as a mother with the the, the two gals who were working there with her left because they couldn't deal with her then she left and complained about her yep whatever you allow in will be viral yeah it gets viral and yeah. that's one of the things I don't know, you know, in uh, the change imperative I talk about, you know, when you make a change, you're going to get about 20% of the folks are going to be all in and they're ready to go. You're going to get another 30% who say, forget you. And they're going to want to keep things the way that it's always been. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to get 50% that are fence sitters going, well, I don't know, you know, I could be, you know, because they're going to be checking out to see if their agendas can still be so served. And that's part of what I, you've got to do is make sure they see how they can be served and, and then how you deal with the detractors, what I call the levelers, the ones who are against the change, will either roll these undecided people over to you into the company or they're going to roll out. And so it's it, how you deal with the, the levelers, the detractors, will influence the 50% of the fence sitters. And, and that's a vital thing because you really want to get the fence sitters over to the into the change, right? And And... That happens by them seeing how it's going to serve them, and that takes some effort. And I, I don't know how much leaders, I know for me when I'm coaching and my own self and we're doing something, thinking about what the team needs to hear so they could be on board or what do they need to contribute or what should I be listening for to shift what I'm up to or improve what I'm up to to get them involved, right? That's a that's a, That's one of those things where, a lot of founders want to move so fast they tend they can tend to miss that and then it hamstrings them when they need their people you know there's something i want to make sure we get to and that's actually making the decision and how we operate in the decision that we make when we bring somebody on uh we make our we you know we go through the process hopefully we're measuring for both competency and attitude um and and we find somebody who seems to be a good fit we make the decision we bring them on as a hire how do we show up for them in that moment? I, I think it's, for me, it's a true principle or that I've, up until now, it's been a true principle in my life that when I commit to something, those are the things that become a success in my life when I fully commit to them. Um, and uh, I'm not saying don't have probational periods. I'm not saying don't watch them for you know, a period of time to make sure that they're that they're showing up and integrating into the culture and that their competency competency is there. But what I am saying is I, I see a lot of people hiring and going, well, we'll see. Yeah, well, I just had that discussion with the CEO, that very discussion. And my point, to, I actually asked him, he told me about this guy who was hired. And it was an HR guy and um, the head of his HR department. And he hired him and gave him a you know, basically a VP position. And he asked me, he said, uh, he was talking about, he goes, well, well, I go, well, how's he doing? You know, how's so-and-so doing? And he said, well, we'll see. And I said, well, what do you mean? What do we'll see? Where do you stand with him? Did you interview him? Yes, I did. Did the other team members, did everybody? Yes, we did. We all thought it was great. I said, good. So Mike, he goes, well, what are you hearing? I said, well, I don't know that you mean this, but I got the impression that 
you're really not on his team till he proves it. But if you hired him, didn't he already prove it that he's worth to be on his team? And what's wanted and needed to have him win? If you have some, if you hired him and you have some concerns, what are they that you need to take care of so you can be completely on his team and him winning? Which made a big difference for him. I mean, he told me, he said, wow, I never even thought about that. And so he made, he's made some, he's already made big shifts, really clear with the guy about what's wanted and needed. He's talking to him and he's standing with him. And he's, he's declared two or three times, I'm committed to your success. And that's why we're having this discussion. Right. And I think that's really the attitudinal thing is if I'm going to say yes, then I'm aware of what I, what my concerns might be. I'm prepared to stand and deal with those honestly and forthrightly with the one. And, you know, the other thing is I ask myself this question, is this somebody I want to work with? <laughs> that, that's the not, qualified. They may like the work, but do I want to work with them? And, and I think when you're hiring people on your team, it's not like you have to like them and want to be best friends, but do you respect them? Are you going to be willing to fight for them? And even though they're qualified and may do well, they won't do as well unless you're on their team, if they're working for you. And so I, that's a crucial distinction before you put, you know, when you're hiring somebody, you sign, sign them on. I use that as an internal check. And do the people that, one of the things I like to do is like when you came on with us, Adrian wanted me to meet you, wanted Liz, Eileen to meet you. We wanted to connect with you to, and, and then we talked about, well, what do you think? What do you think? And, and we had enough conversation with you and knew you well. That was like all in, right? So then everybody's in and now we're all fighting for you and you fight with us and we, for us and we, we're fighting for the company to win. Yeah. Commit, commitment is met with commitment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've been very, I, you could, I mean, you know, our downsides, you could say what they are and you could say what worked, what didn't work for you in coming in with us. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I mean, part of, so I think what, what what's invisible to people is, the natural, even they might even call it boundaries or something, definitely the routines of, of a new hire. I'm thinking about like people usually do, they sometimes do like a 90 day review, you know, uh, probation and then do, like, do a review. Like, okay, well, you've been here three months now. How's it going? Um, and and I, my question is, why aren't you reviewing on a much more often basis? Or, you mm. know, why are you waiting 90 days? I mean, because right. there be things happening on day six that now you're going to wait 84 days to talk about, you know, and so there's, if you are those things, and I think it's, that's a great story, Dan, if you are those things, if you are committed to them, and then you've, you've invited them to be committed to you, um, there's a, there's a level of conversation that can be present that actually, if you get it in the water, get it in the culture between you and, and the person that works for you early, then you can bake it in and they don't know the difference. Well, that's right. And and when the 90 day thing, you ought to be checking in if you're sure. working for you. Right. And one of the things I like is, for instance, like, well, I, I, for instance, if I'm checking in, if that dialogue's in, they're going to push back, which is great because then I might learn things I didn't know. Right. Yeah. I, you know, that's one of the things I really appreciate. Again, I want to go back to Chad. It's his pushing back about making sure things are working the way we said they were. Yeah. As a sense of integrity, that was one of the first things I saw. And then he's like, "Well, I don't know if this, this is a good thing. I'm more putting a lot of money in here, and it doesn't look like it's working." And, and I notice I'm a lot more easy. Like, well, no, let's go a little further with it. But I love that you've been so conscious about the budget and the end result, right? Mm -hmm. But that that was evident in our first discussions. Yeah. Yep. Well, and that that check in goes both ways, right? If I'm yeah. hiring talent i'm going to watch and see how often they're checking in with me yeah right from the beginning in an honest way yeah yep. can they push back and i and think not, can you ask them? yeah like what would, you, what would you change what's not working for you what what's how, what am i doing that isn't working for you right yeah what, what would work better yeah. for you well and, and people have the, the, the term micromanagement has become such like a a naughty word like that's what people definitely don't want to be as a micromanager what i think in order not to be a micromanager a lot of people decide to give up their concerns right yeah. like well, I don't want to be a micromanager so i better not say anything um you know and and people i mean 
my point here is, I mean, to create, to let people know, hey, now you're here. So you're in and I'm in. I'm going to be really close for a good while. Yeah. Now, here's why I'm going to be close. I really want you to win. I know that there are things here that are working that I want you to get. There are things here that aren't working that I want you to notice. And there are things that you're confused about that you're going to need my insight on um, about why it works this way. And there's probably going to be things that you're going to see that you think I don't want to hear from you because you want to like look good in the first 90 days and not get fired. The way to win me over is to bring concerns to me in a productive way, you know, but and whatever that is for a, for a person that's setting that up. But to set up that con my point is like to set up the context, like, hey, I'm going to be close to you because I want to trust you. Well, you know, and another it's interesting you brought that up is that, that same CEO I talked with. Uh, micromanaging is telling people what to do, right? And leading is is telling them what's going to work for you, right? Not what to do, but this is what works for me. Let let come to me with a constructive. Tell me what the out is. Tell me your ideas about it. Ask me, you know, use me as a resource. Don't let it sit. Let's not wait till it bites us in the butt, and then you have to sit. You have it as a story, right? Those are different than you need to do it this way, or you should do this, or you shouldn't do that. Versus, this doesn't work for me. This would work better for me if you told me beforehand. Blah blah blah. What's you know what would work for you? Do you see this as a breakdown? Right. That's a very different. That's more like a coaching. Like a coach is there. The minute you know the coaches I had when we were working out. And one coach used to carry and playing football, used to carry a sawed-off baseball bat handle. <laughs> and you, you make one mistake, he'd come up behind you and ting you on the head. And I go, what? And, and we had to either – if we could recite what we didn't do well or what we missed, he wouldn't ping us again. If we couldn't, he'd ping us again and then tell us. Right? <laughs> so, so it's like we're constantly looking at, okay, what did I – you know, ping, oh, shoot, what did I miss there, right? Yeah. But, but I mean, in a way, that that – the, having somebody who cares about you and cares about your game like that is this guy was one of the biggest influences in my life because he really cared that I do well, right? Yeah. And he wanted the team to do well. Yeah. So that's I think that's a lot. And I think you said something earlier today, Adrian, that really clicked with me that athletes tend who play team sports or who not necessarily just team sports who have coaches tend to receive coaching much better, more usefully than people who haven't had that experience. Yeah. I, I, I found that too, that they're more welcoming to seeing their performance as a game film that they can learn from. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's part of, and maybe, I mean, I know we're kind of winding down here, but because and we have lots of ideas about this. And I yeah. So, so the last seven minutes of this podcast, by the way, is just a little preview of next episode. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I was just going to, you know, if you can, as much as you can, as much as you can, you know, when you hire someone, you're not hiring a finished product. You're hiring a person that's in process. Yeah. And that's what that you got to set a vision for that because they might think you hired them for who they are, not who they're becoming. Yeah. And, you know, and so if you if you hire them for who they are, then they're going to protect themselves and be very precious. They won't want the feedback. If you're hiring them for who they're becoming, then Feedback is actually a gift to them because they want to know what's working, what's not working, because I'm on my way to becoming the next version of myself. I want a presence possibility when I'm in a room, when I'm with a deal, when I'm with a client, with them, whatever. Like I want to be at uh, even what I perceive might be my uh, highest capacity. But I hope I don't ever see my capacity, like my, my furthest capacity. I'll need other people to point that out and to push me. So. You know, you could either hire someone for their for their potential or for their preciousness, but you got to talk about that early. In in parallel to that, I think it's important to let them know that you're hiring them onto an imperfect team or or a yes. or a or a product yes. or whatever it is that you're after a project. We're not where we want to be with this project. That's why you're coming on, yeah. and this and is going to evolve is, with your voice is yeah. needed. Yeah. Particularly, you may have to make multiple mistakes, but that's okay. Your voice is needed. We need you to, because you don't know which one of those things that you think are stupid might be the home run. Right. That's right. That's right. Oh, this is great, gentlemen. I'm stoked for this series. This is going to be fantastic. Right. Thanks so really? much for showing up. You're good Thanks, to be here. Thanks for talking to everybody. Bye, everybody. Like, like cats. Yeah. <laughs>
You're hurting us. What? We're like cats. You're hurting us. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Ciao. Bye. Well, friends of the podcast, thank you so much for joining us this week. If this podcast has helped you or entertained you at all, we encourage you to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review. That'll help us reach more people and grow this community. Also, the greatest compliment that you can give us is sharing this podcast with the people in your life that are looking for a new way to lead and to relate to others. And finally, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad at takenewground.com. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll meet you back here next week for another episode of the Naked Leadership Podcast.